0: Good morning, everybody. We are back going through our series in Matthew. Along this, like last year, we've taken two breaks for two short mini series. And so there was a part one and a part two. And now this is part three. If you were here when we started it, you remembered we called part one of this long series A Broken Line. And that was essentially because as Matthew begins his story, telling about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus it appears as if the line of the messiah is broken like the line of david is is forgotten destroyed or lost like it's all bad news rome is in charge they have a puppet king herod installed in israel and there really isn't like any contenders to be the rightful heir to the throne of israel and then matthew begins his story with a genealogy and he says like not so fast and behind the scenes he demonstrates that god was indeed working all these years hundreds of years preserving his people and being faithful to ultimately bring about the birth of jesus and then matthew backs up his his work he backs up the claim like no jesus is the rightful heir he's the son of david and we see him spared at birth from the the murderous rage of herod he's worshipped by magi from the east he goes off into the desert and contends with satan he's baptized and a voice from heaven comes down and says this is my son And then in part two, we entitled it, A Kingdom Come, and it was this this powerful display of God's kingdom. If you remember and you were tracking, it's like Jesus is doing miracle after miracle. The unclean are being made clean. The leper is healed. There's people receiving sight. People are being healed from paralysis. This little girl is raised from the dead. And it appears as if this point, like nothing is going to stop this momentum. Miracles, demons are being cast out. It's like the kingdom's here. Let the party begin welcome to part three because jesus is going to interrupt all of that he's going to say hold on not so fast and although you've been getting momentum after momentum after momentum it's all interrupted and jesus says these words behold i am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves so be wise as serpent as innocent as doves beware of men for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my namesake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. You sort of feel that shock to the system? It's miracles, miracles, all kinds of people are following Jesus, it's great. What's next, Jesus? Immense suffering. It's like, you feel it, like, whoa. So let's start off with this first verse, because there's... I was going to say there's a powerful image but it's really a set of images that creates another image jesus says i am sending you out as sheep among wolves so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves now directly jesus is speaking to to his apostles but as we're going to see this is this teaching is broadened out to include the mission of the church so you are like sheep among wolves Now, what's fascinating about this is this is intentional. Jesus is not saying, you know, I'm going to send you out to preach the gospel, and along the way, you're going to encounter some problems. I'm sending you out as sheep. The sheep, it doesn't come with weapons and violence. It just goes out and tries to follow the shepherd. And then he says, because you are like sheep in the midst of these predators, you ought to be two things— you ought to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves and there's a temptation here often to sort of think of like all the different characteristics of doves and all the different characteristics of serpents and try to map it out but really i mean that's a massive problem because different people different cultures have different views of of different animals like even in this room i'm sure there's a diverse array of feelings towards snakes you know but we should focus on what jesus actually says You're to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Christians are innocent. We shouldn't be innocent, but our innocence shouldn't be a a naivety or a kind of cluelessness. We need to be wise. And why do we need to be wise? Because the world is filled with wolves, and that's where Jesus sends his followers. And so it's this beautiful image of of these sheep going out that are to be wise and both innocent, knowing there's predators all around. Then verse 17, verse 17 this is this is great. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my namesake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. A quick note on flogging, um, especially if you've grown up in the church world, you've, you've heard about how... Um, Jesus was flogged 40 times minus 1 or 39 lashings. That's often said. Um, That saying is taken from Jewish law. Uh, And so when we're talking about being flogged in the synagogues, that's that specific 40 minus 1, 39 types of lashings. If you've never heard of that, that's okay because it's actually not great information because that applied to people being punished in the synagogue. With the crucifixion of Jesus, he is being tortured and killed by Roman authorities, not by Jewish authorities in a synagogue. And so, Jesus, under Roman brutality, could experience anything. But in this case, they are talking about this specific type of beating where you were whipped 39 times. And he says, That's what's going to happen to you. And you're going to be dragged and you're going to be arrested. This is going to be this, this just brutal suffering. There's a theologian by the name of Frederick Bruner, and he's, he calls it the ABCs of Christian witness or evangelism. He goes, here's the ABCs. You're going to get arrested, beaten, and confronted. It's like, wow. Arrested, beaten, confronted, flogged, dragged before their courts. You'll have to answer to kings. I mean, this is essentially the sales pitch. Jesus has been doing all these miracles, talking about his coming kingdom, and he's going like, guess what? You get to be emissaries of the gospel. I'm going to send you out. Great, let's sign up. Okay, here's the details. Here's the package. You know, arrestings, beatings, floggings. Some of you are going to get killed. Now, like, who wants a piece of the pie, man? Who wants in on this business venture? Man, it's great. That's exactly what Jesus says. There's no sugar coating in it. There's zero trying to soften it here. There's just... There's going to be suffering if you are sent out as a Christian. And then there's a hint at the expanding mission of the gospel. So it starts off saying, you know, you're going to be flogged in synagogues, but then by the end of it, you're before kings and governors and testifying to the Gentiles. And so it's talking about the global kind of expansion of the mission of the church. It starts out here, and there will be suffering, and then it'll expand, and there will be suffering, and then it will expand, and there will be more suffering. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not for you to speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Okay, kind of Bible trivia time. When you don't know what to say and God will help you with the words to say, what is that probably an allusion to? There's something you remember way back in the Old Testament. Remember, there's, there's a guy named Moses, and he's chosen by God, and he gives like a list of excuses, and one of them is, I don't know what we're going to say. I don't know what I'm going to say. And God says, I'm going to give you the words. And now the same type of thing is repeated for believers. As you go out, God will be with you. The same God that was with Moses that delivered Israel and brought judgment upon Egypt, that God is, is with you, and he will give you the words to say in those moments. Now, you could say, well, what will they have to defend themselves over? Like, what are Christians going to be persecuted for and arrested for? Well, historically, in the first kind of few centuries of the church, there's all kinds of accusations going around, tons. Some of them um, are quite bizarre. For instance, one one thing that was said of the Christians is that they were cannibals, and you might infer that because there's this meal that they share where They say that Jesus says, this is my body, broken for you, and eat it. And so people would hear that thing, and they say the Christians are weird. They think they're they're practicing some type of cannibalism. They were also uh, accused of being sexually immoral because Christians would have something called a love feast, an agape feast. It's this gathering and eating and, and fellowship together that the Christians would have, but because it was called an agape feast, that's the Greek word for love, they would say, oh, there's some really weird stuff going on there. Christians are kind of weird oftentimes christian art would depict god's judgment with fire so they were accused of being fire starters historically that would lead to something incredibly tragic they're also inclu- in, said to be horrible treasonous citizens because they wouldn't take an oath or burn incense or make sacrifices to the emperor there's all these slanderous accusations that go out and it's like as you read your bible you're going how could people even think some of this stuff that's the pattern throughout history, right? You have probably seen online or heard someone in person who maybe not, like, knows that you're a Christian say something, oh, you know the Christians, man. They believe X, Y, Z, and all they want to do is this, that, and that, and if, man, if the Christians had their way, it would be like this. You're going like, dude, you have no clue. Like, this, this, you, you totally don't understand what Christianity is about. And so, from the beginning to now, there is always slanderous lies from the father of lies making false accusations against the followers of Jesus. And the Christians are to be like sheep. And remember, this is where God has sent us out. And so, we are to be wise, but also innocent. Kindly, gently make a correction in love and grace and truth. There's an incredibly encouraging component to this. Um, when it says the spirit of your father will be speaking through you, notice notice the phrase, the spirit of your father. And I think this is, I mean, obviously this is intentional, but I think there's something important about this is it's not just um, the spirit of the father in some abstract sense, the spirit of God in some abstract sense. The, the language is, is one of intimacy, intimacy. It's the spirit of your father, your dad, your father is going to be with you. He has you. He holds you. He'll give you the words to say when you're brought in these situations. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and child will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. It's getting worse, man. You following this? It's like bad, bad, bad. And now it's like, no, even family members are going to turn on you. Important note, it says that they they will hate you for my name's sake. A Christian isn't hated merely because they're Christian. The hatred comes because of who the Christian belongs to, who they represent. It's for the sake of Jesus, his name's sake, that the hatred happens. And then Jesus gives this, this horrific image of, of family members turning on family members. What you need to know is historically, that happens. There's corrupt governments and dictators and tyrants, and there's enough fear and evil that that captures a society where people are willing to to turn in family members and betray each other for becoming Christians. There's many places in the world where if you are a young son or a daughter, especially if you are a young woman, you're a, a, a daughter in a family that holds to a different faith and you convert to Christianity, there are horrific consequences for you becoming a follower of Jesus from your family. That's a reality for people in our world. It's a very difficult last verse. It says, Truly I say to you, you will not have gone throughout all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. All right, so it's tricky because there's, there's like five different ways to interpret this. And one of the easiest ways that we immediately jump to is probably not actually what's occurring. Jesus tells his disciples, Before you... you you finish going through all the towns in Israel, you're, gonna, you're going to see the Son of Man coming. And because we talk about the return of Jesus as the second coming of Jesus, and that's fine, nothing wrong with that, when we hear the word Son of Man's coming or the Son of Man is going to come, we immediately think about the return of Jesus. And that's a possible interpretation of this, but it, it creates some problems, you could see, because he's like, you know, you're not going to go through all the towns of Israel before this this event happens. So, just so you know, uh, and you could kind of look at it and study it yourself and kind of decide where you think you land, but some people think that this idea that the disciples weren't, aren't going to be able to preach to all the towns of Israel until there's this coming of Jesus may refer to the resurrection of Jesus. It could refer to a judgment of Jesus with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Some people would say, It refers to the return of Jesus at the end. And then a lot of people, and this is sort of where I lean to, but it is very difficult to say, is that we immediately think of the Son of Man coming as it's a coming to us. But the Son of Man image is from a passage in Daniel chapter 7. And when the Son of Man comes in uh, Daniel chapter 7, it's Him approaching the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and receiving the kingdom. So it could be this reference to the ascension of Jesus where he is given all glory, dominion, and power. I just always want to let you guys know when, where there's like several different things and there's not certainty it's one of those things, kind of here are the options. Now, here are we at so far, though. We'll call this the three circles of Christian living. You're going to be hated by kings and governors. You'll be hated by your family. And then Jesus says, guess what? all individuals will hate you for my namesake we'll put this like in the church membership course introduction to christianity the three circles of christian living governors kings tyrants family members all individuals they're all going to hate you all right so obviously all people will not hate all christians This isn't the point. This isn't to develop like some persecution complex where it's like, Christians, all of us are being persecuted all the time. Everyone hates us. What is occurring, though? Jesus is giving us a picture and an image, and he's saying that his coming kingdom, his kingdom of grace, love, forgiveness, truth, justice, and mercy, that kingdom will will be resisted by every last power of hell until the very end, that the forces of evil and darkness will wage war against this. And it's this picture that everything is going to be against God's coming kingdom because the satanic forces and every last power of hell is going to try and assault it and resist it. And so he's telling his first followers, like, don't be surprised when this happens. I know you've seen the miracles. You've seen forgiveness. You've seen all these things, but make no mistake about it. There's another component to this, a very important component that you cannot neglect. He goes on. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. Is it enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master? If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? All right. So there's this weird phrase right here. Weird word, right? Beelzebul. Sometimes you you might know it as Beelzebub. It's translated differently. It's transliterated differently. What's going on? Most likely, there's a false god from another region near Israel who had a name that sounded like Beelzebub. And it meant something along the lines of like Lord of the, the high abode or Lord of the high house. And what Jews in the time of Jesus were doing is they were changing the pronunciation of it just subtly. So it sounded like something along the lines of the Lord who flies or the Lord of the flies, and maybe with the possible intention of saying it's the Lord of the flies, it's something akin to the Lord of dung, because that's where flies go. And so the the word Beelzebub at this time is being used sort of as this, this way to make fun of something. So Jesus is saying, if they have called the master of the house, that's Jesus, jesus is the head head of the house if they call him the lord of dung they slander him and mock him they use blasphemous titles to him what do you expect what do you expect they're going to do to the children of his house see it's confusing at first but then the it's powerful if they slander jesus in this way what do you think they're going to say about you how do you think they're going to treat you Again, it's sort of like, who wants to sign up for this adventure? Kings, governors, family members, other individuals? You'll be slandered, beaten, arrested? Here's the ABCs of Christian living. Here's the three circles of Christian living. Let's go. Nevertheless, by the power of the Spirit, men and women continue to say, sign me up. I want to follow this Jesus. That's exactly what's occurring historically at this time. Okay, the last section of, of this portion of Scripture. So, have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, And what you hear whispered, proclaim it on the housetops. Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. I believe this is some of the most profound wisdom in the Bible. We have to slow down because it's confusing, but this is heavy. This is heavy. Part of the reason we have to slow down is the first part's very confusing. It says, Don't fear them, but fear God. Therefore, don't be afraid. If you work through that, that's sort of the inner logic. <clears throat> don't fear these guys, but you better fear God. Therefore, don't fear. So what's going on here? Jesus says, don't don't fear what people can do. Even if if you're arrested and you're beaten, do not fear them. Why? Because you you should fear God. Now at this point we have to pause because um, truth be told, most modern people don't like to hear phrases like you ought to fear God. Um, And even in the church world some of you might have heard stuff like this and it's it's fine there's a there's there's a way in which i see what people are trying to do but you've probably heard something when the bible says to fear god it's not saying like to to really fear him it's just kind of saying like it really should be translated something like respect respect god you know when he walks in the room make sure to take off your hat show some respect stand up straight The problem is, whenever the Bible talks about fear of God, if you look at how it talks about it, it speaks of it in a far more intense manner than just try to have a little respect. How is it speaking of in this case? What does it say? Don't fear them. They could just kill the body. Fear God. Why? Because he can destroy, destroy both your soul and body in hell. That's the words of Jesus. Like, we can try to wiggle out of that and say, well, that's just, you know, make sure to stand up straight. Jesus like, don't fear the people. Fear God. He can destroy both your body and soul in hell. It's like, whoa. Whoa. It's very difficult, right? How, how, do, you, how do you integrate that with your understanding of the love and mercy and grace of God? Well, the first step is to know that it's not because God is some bad guy that you ought to fear him. You know, because when, when we fear something, usually it's, it's something bad, right? So immediately we're already off to the wrong emotional start. If I should fear something, it's something bad. Rather, you don't fear God because he's bad. You fear God precisely because he's good. And he is the most good being in all of reality and existence. That's why you fear him. Well, how does that work? Well, because... If he is a being that is purely good, then this being will not let evil go unpunished forever. He will execute judgment and justice. He won't let wickedness continue forever. He is so good that he will put an end to all of it. And so, for those who practice wickedness and are evil, there is a fear of God that you ought to have. Not because he's bad, precisely because he's good. He's not going to let the world get away with it forever. He's not going to let so-and-so get away with it forever. He's not going to let you get away with it forever. And if for some strange reason you get away with it for your entire life, guess what? You'll still have to look him in the eyes and face judgment. And he's a good judge. He's a good judge. And he always does right, and he always executes justice. Okay, so how does this work on a practical level? Uh, Let's say you're a teenager You may be a teenager in the room. For some of you, this will apply. (sighs) Dad told you to clean your room. Dad's at work, but you know he's coming home. Okay? You better clean your room, son. By the time I get home from work, I want to see your room clean. Now it's like 5.15. You're like, 5.15 p.m., dad's on his way home. I didn't clean my room. I better clean my room so I don't get in trouble. Okay? I don't want to get in trouble. Better clean my room. It is a good thing to do something to not get in trouble. That's a good thing. Follow this. The Bible says, what is the beginning of wisdom? Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Why? Because, look, in a perfect world, you could say, you're the teenager again. I love my father so much. And I know that his commands and laws of this house are so good, and he made them for my own flourishing and my well-being. Therefore, out of love and affection, I will joyfully make my room. Okay, look, if you're that, if you have that teenager, God bless you. Okay? But that's not always going to be the case. Sometimes it's merely just, I don't want to get in trouble. Now follow this. As a Christian, there are days when your love and affections for God are not overflowing. You're not like, you know, you just wake up in the morning, you got worship music. Lord, i never love you more than, than I love you right now. Everything's so good. You're just whistling. You're, you're singing worship songs as you're cooking breakfast. There are days when it's not like that, right? There are days when you don't want to submit to God. There are days you don't want to obey God. There are days your heart isn't like fluttering with love and and affection towards God. Lord, I just want to obey. On those days, what will keep you in check? A good, healthy fear of God. It's not the end of all wisdom, but it's the beginning of all wisdom. Listen, there are some of you who obey speeding laws, not because you love the laws of the land and you know they were... Rightly instituted for the flourishing of all traffic You obey the law because you don't want to get a ticket The only reason why you go 65 is you don't want to get a ticket That's not bad, that's called wisdom Wisdom says, man, I don't want to get in trouble I don't want to do wrong to get... And so what happens is a healthy fear of God Keeps you in check and you don't fear God because he's some vindictive judge out trying to get you. Just You say, I fear you because I know you are good and true and righteous and you will always do good and you will always execute justice. And if I go on continuing my behavior, you're going to put a stop to it and I will have to answer for it. And the Christians can call leaders to account saying, you don't get to govern like this. You don't get to lead like this. You don't get to act like this. Because there is a God in heaven who will judge all men. And so this, this is sort of, it's this internal motivator when there's things aren't going perfectly in your life. And if you've been a Christian a long time, you've, you know this to be true. You know there were times, days, months, years where everything wasn't great, but you said, man, God's not gonna let me get away with this forever johnny cash sooner or later god's gonna cut you down it's because he's good and and it's not because he's a vindictive judge trying to get you he just is right and true and he's always going to be right and true because his nature is unchanging and so jesus says don't don't just fear earthly things fear fear god in heaven and then he immediately now here's the important part he immediately then Balances the equation, right? He then speaks of the sparrow. Go to verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore you are more valuable than many sparrows. This is beautiful. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Okay, the word for penny here is sarion in Greek. It's roughly one-sixteenth of a denarius, which is a day's wage. So we don't have to get into all the math, but Jesus is basically saying, you could buy two sparrows for less than an hour's worth of work. And and in a poor, agrarian society, that's saying something. You get two sparrows for nothing. You follow this. The sparrow is worthless. That's the point. In earthly eyes, the sparrow is absolutely worthless. You can get two of them for an hour's work. Can't even get a hamburger today for that price, man. Are you not two sparrows sold for a penny? And listen, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. What the world considers worthless, God values to such a degree that he knows when ones fall. His eye is on the sparrow. And then he goes, but wait, wait, you you see how much he cares about the sparrow who's worthless in the world's eyes? The hairs of your head are numbered. So fear not. Therefore, you are of more value than the sparrows. What the world considers worthless, God values, and he knows when the bird falls. He knows when the sparrow falls. Don't you know you're more valuable than this? Don't you know he loves you? He knows. He's numbered. He's counted. The hairs on your head. He loves you, and he knows you. How much more valuable are you? So don't fear. He's for you, not against you. He's not the vindictive judge trying to destroy you. He's good and right and true, and justice will come, so have a healthy fear of that. But also know He's not against you. He loves you. He knows the hair's on your head. If you don't end up fearing God, you will fear men. And in fact, it's probably worse than that. If you don't end up fearing God, you'll fear everything else. You're going to worry about this, worry about that, worry about that, rather than knowing, no, there's a person who controls my destiny. He watches over me. He watches over the sparrow, and they're worthless, how much more so to me. And so what happens is when you don't have a healthy fear of God and a healthy love of God, you'll end up being afraid of anything and everything. There's a, uh, a preacher in the 1500s, his name was Vladimir, Bishop Vladimir, and uh, he, he was pr- getting ready to preach on a Sunday morning. It's about five, 1500s is when this took place in England, and King Henry comes into the room, okay? So it's like, picture the king walking into to church on Sunday. But back then, the king, if he didn't like the sermon, like, if you said something against the king, he can kill you, Right? So it's a big deal so how does this preacher start his sermon knowing you know his if you were friends with this dude he'd be like you come up real quick hey isaac the king's here man the king of england's here watch what you say watch what you say you, you can end up dead so bishop Vladimir says this he begins his sermon saying "Vladimir, Vladimir, watch what you say for king henry is here he pauses and then he says, "Ladimir Ladimir, be careful what you say for the King of Kings is here." You could fear men or you can fear God." Do you see how this works? It's not this crazy, fearful thing where the judge is out to get you. It's, "No, no. Who do I report to here? Who's in charge of my ultimate destiny? Whose hands does, does hold reality? Don't fear men, fear God. And love him because he loves you enough to number the hairs on your head. Okay. Now, all of this has been about persecution and what to do in the midst of intense physical persecution. We're talking about beatings, floggings, arrestings. And there's a temptation to immediately want to say, okay, uh, let's begin to apply this to ourselves. And there is application of this passage to us, obviously, but I don't want to skip over who this is primarily applicable to. Because first and foremost, you have to recognize that we're not being arrested and flogged. Now, I want to make a note. Countries and cultures change like this. So in your lifetime, you could see something like that. May it never be so. But countries and cultures, things change. But right now, you are not being arrested and flogged. So first and foremost, the direct application is not at us. It's towards people who are actually going through intense persecution for their faith in Jesus. And what you need to know is today, today, there's roughly 360 million Christians that face persecution and discrimination for their faith in Jesus. And some of that's low-level discrimination and persecution, but some of it is beyond all horror. Death, torture, horrific things done to Christians all around the world. So first and foremost, we need to recognize that the direct application of this passage is to our brothers and sisters in chains. And they are our brothers and sisters. We are part of the blood-bought family of Jesus. So we have to recognize that. We can't forget them. Several years ago, in 2018 i gave a christmas eve sermon 2018 christmas eve service and um it was a a message of warmth and good tidings and joy and celebration of little baby jesus about the persecuted church i was on it's like you're gonna do a persecuted church thing on christmas eve wisdom or folly you decide." But in that, in 2018, I shared a story of a man named Pastor Wang Yi in China. And um, he was a Christian and a pastor, and he refused to be a part of what you'd call the authorized church there. So he didn't get approval because he believed that the government doesn't have the right to approve the type of church he belonged to. And he was also speaking out... His main thing was that he was speaking out against human rights violations. And he knew that very soon he would be arrested and so he wrote an open letter and i read the open letter on christmas eve and i want to read to you some of some of the clips of this because everything this guy says as he's preparing to be arrested beautifully encapsulates the words of jesus he writes as a pastor my disobedience Is one part of the gospel commissions. Christ's great commission requires us great disobedience. The goal of disobedience is not to change the world, but to testify to testify about another world. In other words, the reason I'm speaking out against this human rights stuff, the reason why I'm being told not to, and I'm disobeying that, is not for some like I'm against my government or some political cause. My main root, my main issue is that I am called to testify of another world and a different king. And I'm going to preach him, and I will not be silent. I also understand that this happens to be the very reason why the communist regime is filled with fear at a church that is no longer afraid of it. You fear God, or you're going to fear the world. You're going to love God, or you're going to love the world. It's a church filled that is no longer afraid All acts of the church are attempts to prove to the world the real existence of another world. The Bible teaches us that in all matters relating to the gospel and human conscience, we must obey God and not men. For this reason, spiritual disobedience and bodily suffering are both ways we testify to another eternal world and to another glorious king. In my sufferings, in the church's sufferings, we are testifying to the reality of Jesus, to the reality of another world. Separate me from my wife and children, ruin my reputation, destroy my life and my family. The authorities are capable of doing all of these things. However, no one in this world can force me to renounce my faith. No one can make me change my life. I hope God uses me by means of first losing my personal freedom to tell those who have been deprived me of my personal freedom that there is an authority higher than their authority, and there is a freedom that cannot be restrained, a freedom that fills the church of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. Now, that happened in 2018. Where is that pastor today? Still locked away. Reports of solitary confinement and food deprivation. And in his sufferings, he believes he is testifying of another world. So first and foremost, what is this, who does this text apply to? The people who are suffering immensely for the sake of Jesus. That's not to say there's not application for us, because there is, and it's important, very important. But first and foremost, it teaches us that if you're going to follow Jesus, there will be times and places In history well that will cost you your life now thank God we're not in that situation but we also ought to be living in a way that if that situation were to occur we would have the moral backbone and fortitude to do what's right and the way you do that is you cultivate it now like no one is no one right now is gonna say believe in Jesus or die But if you want to make the right decision, if you want to be faithful until the end, you better start cultivating the moral backbone and faithfulness now. Because what happens in our culture is not this like intense, it's this slow and steady kind of like compromise here. Don't say anything. What did Jesus say? What I've told you, speak it from the rooftops. What's the pressure? I don't really say anything. Keep keep quiet. Make a moral compromise here. Don't say N-n-n-n. and what happens is it's crazy, is there's a time and place, right? Jesus says to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So I'm not saying every time you're challenged, you have to like, bruh, I will not compromise. But what happens in this culture is this, this slow inching, this slow breaking down, just moving you, moving you, moving you, moving you. So you become so weak and morally fragile that if you were ever presented in a situation where you had to boldly declare the name of Jesus, there's no chance you're going to do it. So you have to cultivate that Christian life now so that if given the decision, you could be like a Pastor Wang Yi. And by God's grace and His Spirit, you may. We may. So coming out of this, two major things. One, first and foremost... Do not forget our brothers and sisters in chains. Don't forget them. Pray, pray for them. Think about them. They are testifying with their lives of a, to another world. And then, two, use their example as motivation for yourself. Now, you are always to look to the example of Jesus, but you can look to the example of others as well, who are faithful. And say, Lord, you haven't called me to be faithful in that way, but how can I be faithful in my current context? So that's the question for us today. How do you be faithful in your current context? And the sort of practical advice coming out of this is that develop a healthy fear of God and develop a healthy love of God. I don't have to fear men. I don't have to fear men. I fear God. And the only person who I ought to fear loves me. He values me. He cares about the sparrow. I'm more valuable than that. He knows the hairs on my head. And you, you let that do something in you. So, out of this, just sort of look at your life. Do you fear men or do you fear God? Just examine yourself. How are you doing? And then remind yourself you don't fear out of this fear of a vindictive judge who's out to get you. Godly fear is based in his goodness. He is good and faithful and true and he won't let wickedness go on forever so the world better clean up their act and i better clean up my act and then i love him precisely because he's good and he knows me and he cares for me and he watches over me if his eye is on the sparrow his eye is surely on me